Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Ahu, kulamasi. Ni tijinji makuns. Ni mehikanu. Ni tagdalangamau. Nakako satua. Kulamasi, wawene, 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 wawene. I give you all greetings and introduce myself as Little Bear, the name given to me at birth. I became Little Bear by default because my father was Bear, and I therefore then became Little Bear, Makuns. The name stuck even though the physical description did not. (laughs) I am of the Mahikanu people. I am Mahikanu. We are the people of the waters that are never still. You don't know the Mahikanu by that name, and that is to your detriment. For the Mahikanu was named after the first one who sailed up it with a recognizable tall ship, Hudson. The Mahikanu is the Hudson River in upstate New York. I am of the Turtle Clan. I am of the Turtle Clan because my grandmother is Turtle Clan. And with goodness in my heart and deepest gratitude, I extend my welcome to you today. I had a message planned. I was up uh, till about 4.30 this morning, doing rewrites, and understand I'm not, uh, I was going to say I'm not literate. I am literate. I am not uh, as comfortable in literate society as I am in oral tradition. So when I say I was up very late doing rewrites, I simply mean that thoughts were racing through my heads, my head, and mulling them over, so I wasn't physically writing, though what I have in front of me is writing. It would hardly be considered an outline. Uh, My message today is one that really was gestated and birthed by us this week. That is a very uh, creative way of saying, if this time together goes well, I will graciously accept your praise. And if this goes bad, it is your fault. (laughs) 
some protocols that I must uh, adhere to. First, to my elders in the room, I apologize for presuming to speak in front of you and graciously accept your invitation to and pray that I meet your expectations. To our indigenous relatives who are present from all across the globe, I thank you for bringing your ancestors into the room with you today. I feel their strength. Even those who have traveled from the other side of Mother Earth, I thank you for carrying your ancestors with you and bringing them here. To my dear friends Ched and Elaine, I thank you for this invitation and for considering me to be in the caliber of the invited indigenous guests you have invited. I feel unworthy but humbled to be here. Thank you. Also, I am an associate pastor of a church in northeast Minneapolis, Minnesota, named Church of All Nations. It is a dear friend to Chad and Elaine and BCM, and there would be a committal of an unforgivable, unforgivable sin if I did not pass along my love and greetings from my community back home. To the indigenous women that gathered in Sacred Circle two nights ago and invited us into your conversation, I offer my deepest gratitude. I know that those stories of pain and trauma are not free. They come at a cost. And the cost is never paid by those of us who hear the story. The cost is always paid by those who speak the story. In offering your stories of pain, trauma, resilience, and strength so freely, in our presence you embodied the indigenous spirit of Christ in a way that could not more beautifully be represented as you bore the cost for our healing. My deepest gratitude. And finally, to you, the non-Indigenous audience, I offer my appreciation and gratitude that you are here. Undoubtedly signing up for these things, you know, because you know, Chad and Elaine, that you are not being invited to sit in places of ease and comfort. But you will be challenged, you will be pushed, you will hurt, you will cry, but you will grow. 
and with that foreknowledge you came anyway, and I thank you for it. Now, one small primer moving in to the bulk of my message. I have had to adopt a language in my presentations. I'm not speaking of um, the English language that unfortunately is my first language. I'm speaking of the language of academia, of fragility. So the message that I had planned to bring you was a comparative and contrasting of an indigenous perspective in relationship to land contrasted to a Western perspective in relation to land. And though there will still be a vestige of that in my message a little bit, um, the bulk of it is new. But in that language, when I speak of a Western perspective, I hope you understand that Western is um, coded language for white. You see, in this work, those of us who do this work, those of us indigenous and people of color who do this work, we have come to understand that in the depths of white fragility, sometimes white people are so fragile that even if you point out that they are white, they lose their minds. So I've adopted the term Western. If the term Western shows up in my talk today, I would like you all to consciously, in your mind, just insert white. Okay. Thank you. I asked Jay to lead with the song Wade in the Water. And I asked Jay to lead with that song because it sets up a story very beautifully. Years ago, the Carnivalistas were attending my church, or not attending my church, they were visiting my church as they were uh, touring with their show about water. And this song, Wade in the Water, was sung for our congregation. And almost immediately, everybody stood to their feet, began clapping and singing along in joyous repetition. I say almost everyone because there was one exception. That was me, sitting in the back as tears flowed down my eyes. To understand why the tears were there, we have to understand why the song itself even exists. Wade in the water, an old spiritual. God's gonna trouble the water. This is a callback to the gospel scene where Jesus encounters a broken man by a pool. A pool that occasionally the spirit would trouble the water 
and people would submerse themselves in the water to receive their healing, their medicine. This imagery was adopted on the plantations across the American South and sung from field to field as a way to communicate the way to safety, the way to healing for slaves who were seeking their freedom. Wade into the water to wash your scent so the dogs will not find you. Follow the drinking gourd to freedom. This is a callback that is primal in the spirit of all of us that water offers safety, water offers refuge. Water is medicine. We see that in the narrative of Moses' sister putting him safely in a basket into the water. We, of course, see it in the multiple narratives of escaping slaves as they would walk in the rivers north to freedom. And we see it in my own creation narrative of the Mahikanu people who, after a long journey, encountered the waters that were never still and declared, here is Mahikanu, our refuge. Our birth. The reason why I could not bring myself to stand those number of years ago with the rest of my church and joyously sing along because I knew that there was trouble in our waters and not healing trouble. I knew that what we have always sought for refuge and hope, the waters, was not safe. You see, just a few short months prior to the carnival's visit to our church, prior to the wade in the water incident, for lack of a better term, I was standing upon the hill of Wounded Knee, overlooking the field where the massacre took place. And in the distance, I could see Wounded Knee Creek as it cut across the field. And I am not one who is generally prone to visions, but I had a vision that day. It was more than a vision. I could smell the gunpowder. I could hear the cries, and I could see the women and the children as the gunfire broke out and they instinctually ran towards the water. But they were chased down, and it offered no safety. The waters were not safe. Poetically, the evening after the massacre when the killing was all done, snow fell at Wounded Knee, covering the whole area in a blanket of white. And I wondered 
If the soldiers took this as a sign, snow has always been long held, even in the biblical narrative, to be a symbol of purity and innocence. For you see, if we assert that the indigenous blood of Jesus covers the stain of our sin and washes us white as snow, Wounded Knee demonstrates that the reverse is not true. That the whitest of snow cannot cover indigenous blood. This notion that the water is not safe is one that we have seen repeated over and over for decade after decade. It is the song that is still being sung in Flint, Michigan. It is the song that is being sung sung in Lake Onondaga in upstate New York, some of the most polluted water in the Western Hemisphere. And it is the song that was sung along the Cannonball River near Standing Rock Reservation as water was literally weaponized against indigenous people. It's not the first time. We've seen it in Selma. We've seen it in Birmingham. We've seen it in Nashville. Water weaponized. Water not safe. I have been public speaking for a long time now, many years. My number one criticism or complaint is that there's often anger in my voice. I make no apologies for that. I can't help myself. You see, if there is a prophetic edge to my voice, it is because I come from a long line of prophets. Listen here to the words of one of my ancestors, John Quinney, from 1854, the chief of the Mohican people, who were at that time settled 1,100 miles away from the Mohicanu, our ancestral homelands. And in 1854, John Quinney was invited, invited by Reedsville, New York, smack dab in the middle of Mohican territory, to give their 4th of July, their Independence Day speech. If you ever want some good bedtime reading, just Google John Quinney Independence Day speech. But after laying out the issues of how the land that they were now seated upon came into their possession, he was giving a Doctrine of Discovery course 101 some 150 years before it became popular. And he says to the assembled guests, the Indians were reformed in many instances, were informed 
in many instances, that they were selling one piece of land when they were conveying another and much larger limits. Such a particular band for purposes of hunting or fishing for a time. I'm sorry. Should a particular band for purposes of hunting or fishing for a time leave its usual place of residence, the land was said to be abandoned and the Indian claim extinguished. To legalize and confirm titles thus acquired, laws and edicts were subsequently passed. And these laws were said then to be and are now still called justice. What a mockery to confound justice with law. So, if there is edge in my voice that you are picking up, I can't help it. I am descended from a pretty badass individual. <laughs> Within 24 hours after the last protester was taken out of Ferguson, or Charlottesville, or Standing Rock, or the 4th Precinct of North Minneapolis. Pick your assembly. Always, within 24 hours of the last protester being removed, those law and order conservatives will take to social media with such sentiments like, law and order has been restored. Peace has returned to our streets. What a mockery to confound silence with peace. For eyes that have cried so long they can no longer drop tears are not free from grief. The voice that has grown hoarse and can no longer scream has not been assuaged. And the arms that fall to our sides because we are weary from holding them up in defiance are not compliant. Silence is not peace, for we carry the trauma in our bodies. And as Edith so beautifully shared, when we share of our pain and trauma, it is not an invitation to you to share yours. We recognize and affirm your pain, but it is not the same. You see, when you speak of how the church has traumatized you, you are speaking of a church that is failing to live in to the intention for, what, for which it was institutionalized. When we speak of how the church has traumatized us, we are speaking of a church that is absolutely living in to the intention for which it was institutionalized. There is a difference. Mr. 
Many of you this week have expressed, not only to myself, but the other indigenous elders here, you have expressed your surprise at the gratitude and hospitality you have received. We graciously accept your gratitude, but we tell you that your surprise is unnecessary, for this is the way it has always been. Out of this same Independence Day speech, my ancestor John Quinney, in recalling ancestral memory of the first contact of white people to our land, records We saw that our visitors were white and must be sick. We offered them medicine. They asked for rest and kindness. We gave them both. They were strangers, and we took them in, naked, and we clothed them. The hospitality that should surprise you is not that you are welcomed and fed. That has always been our way. The hospitality that should surprise you is that we see you are sick and offer medicine. We know that you did not make yourselves sick. This is a cancer that is metastasizing the origin of which is buried deep in your history. For as Elaine pointed out, the words of the prophet Jeremiah, the parents have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. And if I may paraphrase that for the context of this morning, the fathers and I'm going to resist the modern urge to neutralize gendered language. You'll find out why in a moment. The fathers have poisoned the water, and the children have become sick. So where does that leave us? Why are our waters still poisoned? We have had concentrated environmental justice efforts in place for at least the last six and a half decades. Why are our waters still sick? I would submit to you it is because as altruistic and well-intentioned as non-indigenous environmental justice works are, they fall short. You see, the to sum up, essentially, the foundation, the foundation, the principle of non-indigenous environmental justice work could be summed up something like this. The earth is our greatest natural resource, and it is incumbent upon us to protect it. Sounds good, but it's wrong. Because when viewed from an indigenous perspective, we would state that like this. 
The earth is our most sacred relative. And it is incumbent upon us to protect her. The earth has an identity. The earth lives. She breathes. She moves. She thunders. She nourishes. I would submit to us then that when we seek the source for our environmental woes here in the 21st century, if we only go back to the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, we have only begun to endeavor the historical work necessary. Because by the Industrial Revolution, the identity of the Earth herself had long been stripped away. The source for our environmental problems, the source for our racial problems, the source for our misogyny, patriarchal problems, are not the industrialized revolution that is a symptom of a sickness. The source is whenever patriarchy laid itself upon our sacred stories. I'll demonstrate it in this way. If you ask the typical Christian, what is your creation story, they are going to start out with Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and formless, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep. And then God spoke. This is a very powerful creation story. But if you assume that it is the beginning of the narrative, it is only because you are entrenched in a Western white mindset. Because it is the first page does not make it the beginning. <clears throat> you see, Genesis 1 is actually a reaction. It's a story of imperialism. Genesis chapter 1 is a narrative that comes out of the middle of the Babylonian exile. It is Israel trying to seek a strong imperial identity over and against their imperial captors. It is a story that says, you Babylonian captors, you set up these idols of animals that you worship as deities. Our God spoke those animals into existence. You captors worship the sun as it travels across the sky. Our God created light without the sun. It is a very early theological pissing match. Our God is bigger than your God. It's not the indigenous way. You see, to get to the indigenous narrative of creation, as is held in the Hebrew scriptures, we need simply to turn the page. Because Genesis chapter 2 predates Genesis chapter 1 by at least a millennia. It is the indigenous narrative of creation. 
In Genesis chapter 2, we have a creator who is literally getting their hands dirty in the work of creation. Creator reaches down into the earth and pulls life from her. Creator names this creation, Adama, indicating the color of the earth. Then Creator bends down and breathes into the nostrils the breath of life. Now some of you who have heard me speak about the power of story know that I will assert that one of the most important aspects of story is who is the storyteller. Now these stories were written long ago and our storyteller has been lost to us. And in such cases we need to look to the story itself to derive clues as to who the storyteller is. And in Genesis 2, I believe, if we read it from an indigenous perspective, the storyteller is very, very evident. You see, the creator reaches down to the body of the earth, literally pulls life out of the body of the earth. I have four children, my youngest Judah is five years old. I really miss him today. He was brought into the world under the care of a Orthodox Jewish midwife. And at the critical moment, like at the most important time, this midwife steps aside and says, Dad, get in there. What the hell? (laughs) And I stepped in and with these hands reached down to the body of my wife and pulled life from her body. Our storyteller in Genesis 2 then says that the creator named this being Adama from the earth. Now, those of us who have been present at a live human birth or even a live animal birth know that you do not get a sanitized, good smelling, very beautifully clean child in your arms. It is messy. That baby is painted with the sacred hue of the womb. Adama, from the earth. Then, creator bends down and breathes into the nostrils the breath of life. Does that seem strange to anyone? Nostrils. Why nostrils? Now, you and I all know that, God forbid, if Ched should flop over right now from lack of oxygen, if we vote and decide to revive him... That the best way to introduce oxygen into his system is mouth to It's simple observational biology. This 
is much more efficient than that. Did our ancestors not know that? No, they knew. Why nostrils? Why? Because occasionally babies, when they come straight out of their mother, still have the protective mucus plugs in their nostrils. And since the early 20th century, we have had sanitized rubber implements with which to suction out those mucus plugs. Usually, the passage through the birth canal squeezes those plugs out of the nostrils, and there's no issue. But occasionally, a baby is born with the plugs in it. And what would you do if the plugs were still in and you had no sanitized rubber extractor? The midwife would bend down, press her lips to the nostrils of the baby, and suck them out and spit them to the side, literally breathing the breath of life into the nostrils. You see, the storyteller in Genesis 2 is not the imperial patriarchal God of Genesis 1. The storyteller in Genesis 2, she has a very specific role. The God of Genesis 2, she fulfills a particular role in the community. She midwifes and brings forth life. And if all of us are brought forth from the body of the earth, then we must ask, where is our mother? It is a valid criticism of the strict confines of monotheistic religion. Where is the divine feminine? Where is God? the Father's counterpart. Throughout Scripture, attempts have been made to fulfill that void through the Asherah poles, the Queen of Heaven, Lady Wisdom, and I would suggest even the Catholics' sloppy attempt at Mother Mary to fill the void left by the Divine Feminine. But we don't need to look to those other stories to fill that role. Because when we sit with indigenous perspective and capture the narrative, the song that the earth sings, where is the divine feminine? You walk upon her. You would do well to step lightly. My friends, my relatives, we see that you are sick.
and offer medicine. But we cannot force you into this. Our tears have run dry. Our throats are parched and our voices are faint. Our arms are tired from troubling the waters for you. Do the necessary work. Trouble your own waters and receive your healing. Amen. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.